I'm Donna Jones, host of the Insight to Action podcast program. My work involves evolving the, the leadership consciousness and business consciousness so that businesses can step up to be of greater good in the world and help regenerate it rather than withdraw. So there's more to it, obviously, than that, but, but it gives you the gist of why what guides the conversations that we have in this program. Episode, I'm speaking to Carl Mattingly, who is the CEO of Slow Voice. And Carl's program company, several other companies, he'll describe them. But they all deal with, and the whole conversation came about because of the wisdom of the crowds, as well as uh, prediction market platforms. And just how can you predict when it's very tough to predict anything? So what are the platforms that allow to go deeper in and detect where the real mood of the company, of the public, is going on events like Brexit or inside the company to get what surveys can't get typically? So, Carl, let's start with talking about what Slow Voice and its sub-companies are all about. Slow Voice is uh, something that I started in 2008. It's a sort of play on the the, the, uh, the slow food movement, so you can Google that. And it was a response to uh, what I was seeing in banking and finance at the time, which I think could best be described as fast money. <laughs> so... <laughs> I felt that there had to be a better way. Uh, you've seen the way in which um, credit ratings on synthetics and derivatives were compromised in the lead up to the global financial crisis. And uh, there are a number of examples of how decision making in organisations seems to get compromised or biased. Uh, I came across prediction markets in the about 2009-2010 and thought that looked like a pretty interesting way to um, get a collective view that even from the, the same experts that you're using in an organisation, I thought that um, collective intelligence was an interesting way of aggregating those experts' opinions and possibly getting a less biased view on what was likely to happen in the future. The path to market was a company called Almanus. Almanus is a public prediction market uh, platform based in London and it uh, forecasts on things to do with uh, finance, economics and geopolitics. And we put that up as a showcase or a proof of concept to evidence that wisdom of crowds and our particular implementation of um, a prediction market could actually deliver um, accurate uh, forecasts uh, and more accurate than bowls and more accurate than experts. And as a general rule, it's, it's proved to be the case. Uh, Percept is the other side of the coin. That's the private um, prediction market platform. And it's, uh, I guess, uh, an implementation of prediction markets. It's more akin to SurveyMonkey. SurveyMonkey on steroids. It's um, a user-configurable prediction market that you can use, form your own crowds, and make your own forecasts or predictions on whatever it might be. Carl, can you use polls and surveys for forecasting purposes if you're looking inside a company to perhaps forecast direction, for example? Uh, I think you can use a poll or a survey to for forecasting, and I think it's a, a legitimate way of doing it. The issue is that uh, if you use a market-based mechanism, you'll get a higher level of accuracy. There's a paper that I'm publishing, an academic paper, and it basically looks at collective intelligence in governance and uh, institutional governance. And one of the papers we referenced there, which off the top of my head, I can't remember the actual, the specific reference, uh, says that uh, you can take the same group of people and when it comes to forecasting, 
if you use a poll or a survey, uh, you do get a higher level of accuracy than you would if you just got forecasts from a, a hierarchy or from a deliberative crowd, but that you get probably a 50% uplift if you over, over a poll or a survey in terms of accuracy of prediction if you use a, a market-based mechanism like a prediction market. So deliberation is pretty good. Polls and surveys are generally better and market-based mechanisms are even better in terms of accuracy. What we're talking about here then is a deeper set of tools. A very, it's really making a, getting a, a grip on what are the clear tools you've got to use when trying to predict the unpredictable. Uh, to look under the hood of these tools, what are the advantages and disadvantages, particularly of market-based mechanisms and how to use them? It depends on the design of the the market mechanism. So general rule, participants can be rewarded for uh, contributing to the accuracy of the, the crowd forecast. Uh, it's hard to do a performance-based or merit-based reward for a poll or a survey participant, uh, but with a market-based platform, you can. So incentivising people to contribute to the formation of information assets or information capital uh, is a good idea, especially in the information age and where we're all meant to be knowledge workers. You could say that a survey or a poll can create an information asset, but it's uh, arguably parasitic. So the, the people that participate don't necessarily get rewarded, but uh, you know they go about 15 minutes of their time to participate in the survey. You're not quite sure for what. So the benefit of a market mechanism is that you are able to reward those that are contributing the most to the accuracy of the forecasts. The other advantage of a market-based mechanism as opposed to a poll or a survey is that polls and surveys are episodic, they're periodic, they're intermittent. The advantage of a market-based mechanism like Percept is that it is continuous. And so what that means is if there is a transition, if there is a change, if there is a shift then it will be picked up more quickly than it would be in a hierarchy or in a poll or a using a poll or a survey. And that's, I think, an increasingly important issue for decision makers, wherever they may be, cycle time, the ability to rapidly respond to change, to identify and respond to change. And that's one of the significant advantages that a, a, a well-designed collective intelligence application like Percept can, can give you. Have companies caught on to the use of these tools for their forecasting and strategic application? Kind of funny you should ask that. We're constrained by a number of fairly onerous non-disclosure agreements, which tells you that a lot of these people don't want you to know that they're using collective intelligence because they see it as being an advantage and they don't want people to know that they have this advantage. If we're to talk in general terms, astute hedge funds, astute family offices can use these sorts of mechanisms to uh, identify, to screen, select and identify the likely performance of investment candidates. So, for example, you can, in a collective intelligence platform like this, you can take video presentations of um, entrepreneurial teams and their, their pitches in their startups 
and you can open the view of those videos and the, the teams to a crowd and generally get uh, much more accurate insight into the likely uh, success or failure of the, the startup and the team. Um, so that that's one use. In financial markets, the reality is that, uh, you know, markets are, you know, stock markets, uh, commodities, exchanges, options markets, they are prediction markets, but platform like this can be used again by a hedge fund to get greater granularity on on uh, variables uh, that might drive um, trading decisions. You've got others. Uh, there's some well-publicized stuff. If you um, if you Google uh, Philip Tetlock, he's got a top-selling book on super forecasters. And what you'll find is if you read his book, that that book is the product of some work, a lifetime of work that he's done, but it's also some work that he did on an IARPA, IARPA project um, some years ago. So obviously the intelligence community is, is interested in applying or experimenting with collective intelligence. So financial markets, venture capital, you can use it for really mundane things like uh, sales forecasting or finding out whether or not products are going to be delivered according to the deadline that management is telling you they're going to be delivered. We find that there are a number of banks that are very interested in using it to do and are experimenting with it to do uh, what we call a live credit watch list or live credit. So um, not all credit in banks is done with uh, credit scoring. Some of it requires judgment. It's called the judgmental risk assessment. And instead of relying on experts, if you take a second signal from the crowd, those same experts, you can sometimes get a faster signal on when there's a credit transition or deterioration. So if a credit's going bad, uh, you'll find that the executives in charge of the account aren't necessarily going to be the ones that are going to give you the bad news in a timely fashion. They tend to hope that things will get better than that they don't have to tell you any bad news. What happens when you use a crowd platform is that um, those transitions get called fairly quickly. So banks are interested in it. It gives them a faster, cleaner signal on risk transitions. Uh, so intelligence community, uh, banks, uh, hedge funds, venture capitalists, uh, and also a, a number of others. How far out can you use these prediction models to determine what's, what lies ahead? Collective intelligence, prediction markets, market mechanisms for aggregating opinion about uh, what's likely to happen in the future. The reality is that the further you go out, the further you project out on the timeline, the cone of the cone of uncertainty, you know, increases exponentially. So, as a general rule, it's quite hard to to get predictions with any great accuracy out past about two years, at best. So, when you're talking about uh, really complex, highly abstract issues like you know where where a where a an emerging technology might go in the next couple of years it's possible that the best way to do that is, yes, use a prediction market as one tool. It's a bit like a game of golf, you know, you've got a set of clubs, so the prediction market is a tool, the survey market and the poll is a tool, and they have different uses. But at the end of the day, for really complex stuff, 
The best thing is a small group of researchers, three to four, three to five researchers, who synthesise all this and go through a deliberative, a deliberative process. Or if they want to go through a structured deliberative process, they would use uh, something called a Delphi. So if you, if you Google Delphi, it's something that the, the RAND Corporation um, bought, bought to prominence in the 60s and it, and it still works. It's a really, really, really effective way to try and, and um, converge on a collective view on really complex and abstract issues like you know, future, future direction of disruptive technology or perhaps geopolitical threats. Intelligence is one of those more nebulous terms. How do we reconcile collective intelligence or, or the relationship between intelligence and bias, which we know everybody has? I mean, human beings have about 150 cognitive biases, and I've, I've actually heard some people like to make that wrong, but that's really not that useful because it just is. So what's the relationship between collective intelligence and bias? Yeah, I'm laughing. When you work out what collective intelligence is, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no. Okay, so no, look, I mean, bottom line, uh, the, the, the internet has changed a lot of things and one of the things that's changed is the way in which we can, you know, form, form a view. The issue, as we know, with bias, we've, we've all experienced it, that situation where someone's more senior than you or someone's richer than you or, or whatever it might be. And so in the deliberation, um, some people carry more weight or more status. And so uh, the product of that group deliberation is, is biased accordingly. Um, another, and another problem with deliberation, for example, um, as a collective effort, is the, the extroverts dominate the introverts. Um, there, there's all sorts of um, um, sources of bias, and we've all experienced them. Um, one of the advantages of, um, well, what, what's an example of collective intelligence? TripAdvisor, Uber. These are all examples of where we've come together collectively to rate counterparties. And so even you're dealing with strangers, but those strangers are rated. So there's a, a trust rating or a quality rating for those strangers. That's using effectively a poll or a survey, but um, you know that's an example of a, a collective, a form of a primitive form of collective intelligence. When something like Facebook, you, you now see enterprise implementations of the Facebook metaphor. So you see really, really clever platforms like Slack or Yammer or um, Jive. And these are ways of um, expanding the group that would participate in deliberation significantly. So there, there are lots of examples we're all familiar with of how large groups of people can produce uh, joint products, which are really useful. One of the problems with something like Facebook or Slack is that the, the signal-to-noise ratio collapses once the group gets beyond a certain size. So if, if you've got a deliberative group, and what we mean by deliberative is you sit around and you talk, basically. If, if the voices at the table get beyond a certain size, then it's very hard to actually have an intelligent conversation with a very, very large group of people. 
we're seeing the emergence of all sorts of tools to try and find ways to enhance the signal to noise ratio with large groups of people that are collaborating electronically. And so, you know, that's a collective effort. When we talk about something like a prediction market um, as a form of collective intelligence, if you combine that with narrative or, or comments like you do, so in other words, a social media function, so you've got Facebook, plus you've got the, the uh, market mechanism for forecasting what's likely to happen, when you put all those sorts of things together, and that's where this whole, that you can see where the trend's going, uh, when you combine all these things, then you can start to get some really interesting insights into where the collective thinks that things are, things are going. The benefit of a large group, uh, or the, the, the benefit of a collective, is that the larger and the more diverse the group, then the more accurate is likely to be the, the um, prediction or the forecast. So big groups, in, if managed effectively, can give you an advantage over smaller groups or over hierarchies that uh, just, just deliberate. Essentially, the, 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 the rule of thumb that I use, and this is for, we're talking about uh, groups that work together, the most effective group is a, a group of three. Uh, a group of two is pretty much ineffective because what you find research shows you is that two is no different to one. The minute you introduce a third party, you actually get diversity. So it's really interesting, the dynamic changes. Is there an optimal group size for collective intelligence to be expressed? Uh, the most effective size for a face-to-face -face group is seven to eight. Once you get above seven to eight, uh, what happens is the groups tend to cleave. They tend to break into two. So, for example, if you see a board and it's got more than eight people, then it's unlikely to be an effective board. When it comes to individuals, you find that around, around 35 is about the limit for uh, span of control and direct control. So you find that most small businesses never get beyond 35 people and that, that a lot of them fail when they try to make the transition from 35 people to 100 or 200 people. And that's because the way in which you manage the group is different. So everything I'm talking to you about at the moment is, is within the framework of a deliberation where there's some form of discussion. The next limit beyond 35, and what you'll find interestingly, some of your listeners will be going, oh, this is interesting. It sounds remarkably similar to a, a military metaphor. Well, that's because military metaphors have been with us now for you know, many, many thousands of years. And the, the people are pretty, pretty much the same now as they, they were, you know, in Roman times. So what I'm saying is that face-to-face, uh, -face, deliberative uh, work groups, uh, most effective um, units of three, uh, a, uh, a working group of eight, a business for one leader for about 35. And then you'll find if you do some Googling, there's a thing called Dunbar's number. And Dunbar did a, a whole lot of work on um, effective uh, work, effective groups, and then what the effective or optimal size for a for um, 
an organisation might be. And I think he came up with that 149 point something or other. So we say a group size of 150. Now, this is all before the internet comes along. So what the internet's done is it's it's cha it hasn't changed uh, what we talk, talk about in terms of deliberation or conversation. You've still got the signal-to-noise issues that um, you, you have with face-to-face. -face. They don't go away when you use Facebook. What goes away with Facebook, depending on or, or the, you know, the corporate equivalence of it, is that you expand the group, you flatten the hierarchy, and in theory, more senior people can hear from more junior people. And, and as you know, Donna, there are some organisations experimenting with, you know, non-hierarchical ways of, of coordinating and organising. But as a general rule, um, hierarchy has a purpose in, in most corporations. One of your issues when you introduce a, a social media platform uh, is, is, as I said, that you can actually have a... The group can be too big, it can be too dysfunctional. The other issue you have is that the same sources of bias that you find in face-to-face -face exist in social media. So there's all sorts of ways that you can put pressure on people in, in a, a social media context to conform the tech tactics that are used in deliberation to manufacture consensus are still present in social media. The advantage of something like um, a prediction market, especially if it's designed properly, is that it can actually cut through that. And so the example I used, Dawn, for your audience would be if you had something very controversial at your local town meeting and you're all sitting there arguing about it and you put it to a vote, it's quite possible that a show of hands on, on the floor will have quite a different result to a secret ballot. And uh, I'd argue that's what you saw with Brexit. I think that when people were asked about their intentions, some of them were uncomfortable expressing the exit option because uh, it was um, there was some stigma attached to being associated with the exit option. There's some potentially unpleasant connotations to the motivation for exit. And the people didn't want to express those things publicly. But in the privacy of the secret ballot, they did express it. So I'd argue that a show of hands on the shop floor is a bit like deliberation and a secret ballot is the poll, the survey or the market mechanism. It's, uh, a, a, it's a second signal that you can get from the group about uh, what they think should happen or what they think will happen. Polls and surveys are, are probably a better, um, better tool for asking people what they think should happen. Uh, markets are a smarter thing for asking people what they think will happen. And, and they're, they're very subtle distinctions. Yeah, it's a very important distinction. Yeah, what do you think should happen is an opinion. What do you think will happen is an opinion that can be tested against a, 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 an outcome. I, re I really appreciate the clarity and those nuances because that makes it so much more easy or guides really the decision on which tool to use. What inspired you to get into this? This is a really interesting area and field to be in. How, what, what took you there? What intrigued me was actually risk governance and compliance. So credit risk, proper governance in organisations, compliance. What I could also see is that, and you're seeing it now increasingly, tenure inside major organisations is, is pretty much a thing of the past. And so what that actually means is that, that, that the moral hazards inside public and private 
organisations of any scale are increasing and you need new tools and new devices to cost effectively manage principal agent risk inside these organisations. And collective intelligence is, is, in the way we've, we've designed it is a really effective way of doing that. My view is that and anything that we can do in that regard improves civil society. And I think that we've all watched what's happened in financial services globally and we've watched the fact that Wall Street has... Uh, it's questionable whether anyone has been held to account for what happened in 2008. I was on Wall Street in the 1980s and uh, in the SNL crisis a lot of people went to jail. 20 years later it's not clear to me that anyone's gone to jail for what happened in 2005-2010. So I think that collective intelligence, if it's harnessed properly, is a, a really effective way of improving the quality of governance and if you can do that you can you can improve um, you can improve civil society and so what i'm trying to say to you is that collective intelligence it's real simple if you harness the crowd effectively you can get faster more accurate forecasts and that has to improve any leadership's judgment and decision making process I think it's really important to also be very careful when people talk about crowdsourcing or collective intelligence. There's often a confusion, which is that they think that somehow this is about democratising management. That's, a, that's an interesting area, but that's not what collective intelligence is about. Collective intelligence is simply about, you know, getting getting better insights as an input to the judgment and decision-making processes that an organisation has. You, you, you can use these tools if you want to abrogate your responsibility. And my tongue-in-cheek comment would be the one thing that we don't do is innovation. And there are software vendors who specialise in, you know, doing innovation. But my tongue-in-cheek comment about innovation as an entrepreneur watching corporates try to do that is that um, hierarchies are very comfortable abrogating their responsibility when it comes to innovation. So they're, they're happy to pass off, uh, you know, this to platforms like Percept or, or, or better design platforms for innovation. But at the end of the day, um, the process of management is a complex one. Currently, uh, and for the last couple of thousand years, hierarchy seems to be the best way to coordinate I'm sure there'll be, what do they call it, holarchy ho, 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 as opposed to hierarchy. Um, so Kessler's ghost in the machine stuff. You know, I'm sure that someone will find a viable way to make holarchy work and, and you know, self-directed, self-organising um, teams is one thing, but I'm, I'm not convinced that self-organising, self-directed corporations is, is imminent. My concern is that for me, I call it the, the trinity. It's information, wealth and power. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that it's like rock, rocks, paper, scissors. I, I think that power and wealth trump information. I think information is, is subordinate. It's, it's the client of wealth and power. And when you start to mess with information and the way in which it's managed or the way in which information assets are created inside organisations, you are starting to play with these social and political frameworks 
the social and political operating systems. And so I think that one of the issues when people get excited about new technologies is often the people that do this don't have experience in large organisations and don't actually understand the complexities of the political and the social and the economic processes that are going on inside the organisations. And I think that it's sort of kind of like the story that we all heard about electricity. You know, electricity, I think, was invented, I don't know, in the 1880s or the 1890s. And it took about 20 or 30 years for a new generation to actually understand how to actually use electricity in, in a manufacturing context. I think the same thing's happening with us, these new technologies like prediction markets and uh, all sorts of other things. We're still working out um, how to integrate those into the social and political processes that we currently have or how to change those social and political processes so they can leverage the new technologies. And that's what I find really interesting about some of the podcasts uh, that you've done and some of the, the, the companies that you've interviewed. The last thing I'd say there is the one thing that hasn't changed, and I'm doing some work on that, is double-entry accounting is still very much aligned to hierarchy. And until you change the way in which you measure and allocate capital inside organisations to accommodate these new type, uh, these new opportunities for, for, for organising, then I think there's a limit to, to how far and how large these, these new innovations can go. But I think we're starting to see that. I think the last time there was an innovation in accounting was, I don't know, 500 years ago with double entry, but, <laughs> but, but I'm optimistic. <laughs> I find it interesting that a lot of things that we still have in place, like double entry accounting and so forth, haven't really changed much. And I think it speaks to the real need to, for change because things are, with the increasing complexity, things are quite, quite different. And so I, I guess I'm wondering how much uptake there is going to be on some of the new things like collective intelligence and, of course, all the work I've been doing. What, what's your thoughts on that? I grew up in, in Asia and other places, and I still remember... Um, hearing a story, and I don't know if this is true, but there was a, a very um, famous American management guru called J. Edwards Deming. And the story is that he was in Japan in the post-war reconstruction in the late 40s or early 50s, and he was teaching the Japanese about um, statistical you know, quality control, um, the stuff that Toyota subsequently went on to master exquisitely. And the story goes that at one point, someone in the audience asked him very politely, uh, Professor Deming, this is all very interesting, but why should we do as you say? And Deming supposedly said, he was apparently, apparently paused, looked at this guy and said, you don't have to, survival's not compulsory. And I think that the point is that people can laugh about a lot of the stuff that you know, you're looking at at the moment with the different ways of... Uh, coordinating and, and organising. But the reality is that it's a bit like the age of steam. We're still working it out. But when we do work it out, uh, it will confer on those organisations that are prepared to be open to the wisdom of crowds and open to all these uh, other technologies and other ways. It will confer on them decisive advantages, as we've seen with Uber and a number of others. So, you know, the, 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 it's not something to be ignored. Decision-making isn't particularly easy at this stage of the game where there's a lot of unpredictability, uncertainty, and volatility and so forth. What, what would you suggest people do to come up to speed with the times and, 
and to know how to effectively use the tools of collective intelligence that you know percept and and Almanus and and the um, and the platforms that you've been developing, which are I think quite powerful and extremely innovative and a real opportunity to experiment and and see what works and, and to try some of these tools out. I think the real issue at the moment is that there's some good books out there. I don't know, Donna, what, what you, you've, your book's not too bad, quite frankly. Um, so I think your book's a good place to start. I think McAfee's um, Enterprise 2.0, it, it's 10 years old now, but it, it was it, it, it was a very interesting book, and I think it still, still carries a lot of weight. Carl, I want to thank you for being on the show and talking about collective intelligence. Great conversation. Look, look forward to um, hearing more of your podcasts to what it might seem. I didn't actually know Carl was going to recommend my book, Decision Making for Dummies, but I really appreciate it because it is often overlooked with its very deceptive title. Anyway, great conversation, great fun. I hope you get something out of there for working with some tools in the future that we just don't have access to right now, collective intelligence being a, a big part of mitigating bias. And to talk to me about speaking or unsticking stuck situations or making sense of the reality that you're working with in today's uh, business life and particular decision-making, reach out to me at fromInsighttoaction.com, my website, or Donna, D-A-W-N-A, at fromInsighttoaction.com.